Welcome to The Cockatoo. I'm Adam Burke, and this is your source for all things Australian music in the US of A. We're coming at you from Los Angeles, California, and this is the interview part of our newsletter where we talk about musical journeys to the United States. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking to Sam Cook. Sam is a Nikinia woman who grew up in the remote Kimberley region of Western Australia. She was the 1999 winner of Aboriginal Youth of the Year, and since then her career has spanned many disciplines, including writer, educator, and producer. Among other roles, she is currently the CEO of KMBA Events, Kiss My Black Arts, great name, and is also the APRA AMCOS representative in Los Angeles. So let's hear a little bit more about her journey. Welcome, Sam. Thanks, Adam. And um, yeah, before before we get started, I'd just like to acknowledge that we're on unceded territory of the Tongva Keech San Gabrielino and neighboring nations of uh, so-called California. And I just wanted to pay my respects uh, to the communities that are you know, standing in resistance and in power today, uh, their elders also past, present and emerging. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And I'm glad you mentioned it because normally we get right into people's story, but I do want to quickly get into into the topic of Indigenous land recognition with you because I know it's something you're passionate about and we'll post something on the newsletter when it comes out so people can dig in a little further. But in Australia, it's fairly common to talk about welcome to country and acknowledgement of country. Uh, in the United States, it's sort of a fledgling concept that we don't see in many places. So for our Australian listeners, they'll, they'll consider this to be um, fairly common and, and a, a standard practice. But tell us about uh, the concept of acknowledgement of country and welcome to country. Well, I think for me, moving here uh, was actually part of that process because as a First Nations Australian, as a Nigana. Um, it was important that I present myself to the traditional custodians of country here and ask permission to be on their land, which I did from the very outset. Uh, when I first moved here, I had uh, direct engagement. Uh, we undertook some really kind of private cultural protocols also with the Shumash nations, which are adjacent to Tongva and built a relationship from the ground up uh, in terms of the recognition and the reciprocity. And it's really, you know, uh, I guess embedding ourselves into a, a way in which we can step um, mindfully on other people's country, uh, no matter who we are and no matter where we are in the, in the world. So it is fledgling in the US. Uh, they, they do call, I guess, welcome to countries here, land acknowledgements. I've been part of the movement that really has pushed um, in some significant ways. One of the kind of milestones of that was the uh, grand opening of the Sixth Street Bridge. And being the director of that production, uh, and three-day event, it was, you know, navigating a terrain where they're really unfamiliar with this type of protocol and saying to them gently and affirmed at the same time that this goes before the mayor, <laughs> that this is the first thing we do on this bridge before we start anything. And I thought we were, would be up for resistance, but it was really embraced. And, you know, we had a very strong uh, visual identity at the opening of the bridge for all the general public to see that this was Tongva country and here's the name of downtown LA, here's the name of the river and you know a, a really small kind of language awareness push as part of that and and that's rippled across uh, a lot of practices here in um, the US now be it in academic settings be it in um, also 
the the zoos for example are embracing it um and and you see it kind of illuminating up and around but i think as you know australians it's also a really important um and you know even new zealand and other countries that practice uh land acknowledgements to really get behind and and embed this into just every day over here so that it starts to really amplify that's great so let's talk about about your country tell us about uh, where you grew up so i grew up uh just outside of my traditional homeland, which is in and around Derby, Western Australia, but I grew up in Broome. And, um, you know, most people are kind of familiar with Broome because of Brand New Day, the the film and the musical and, um, you know, the great recordings from my Uncle Jimmy Chai. Um, but, it, you know, it, it was a, a beautiful upbringing in the sense that as, as a young Nikana person, um, at the, at the time I was growing up, all the kind of key figures in key positions of influence in the town were all blackfellas. And so it was a majority Aboriginal town. And I guess the reinforcement of what that meant was that we could be the CEO of an organisation. We could be the leaders. We could take on key roles in community. And it wasn't, you know, a, a narrative that kind of spoke underhanded about who we could not be it was really about you know elevating us as as our own person uh into whatever career pathway we wanted and it was you know the the kind of strength of uh you know coming from an area that was one of the last to be colonized but also really strong on culture and country but really also respectful of protocol on how we traveled around other people's places too so i think it was idyllic um very you know very quiet and um sometimes you just need that especially in a city like la (laughs) absolutely so so from that background we're going to do a really quick fast forward when did you move to the united states so that is now uh six and a couple of months years ago it was not a decision that i kind of you know made definitively it was just that i had my daughter here and i felt she needed me a little bit more than my son who was back in australia so you know i guess i was fighting the empty nester syndrome and decided where do i want to be so yeah six years ago i took the leap um i'm now a dual citizen though so i guess i'm here for a minute so where were you living at the time six years ago when you decided to to come over and see your daughter here in the united states so i was in um, mianjin i was in brisbane uh i'd been the director of the dreaming festival up at woodford and a program affiliate for the woodford folk festival and before that was working at the Yuriakan Theatre Company in Perth and University of Melbourne uh, with the Willen Centre. So I'd sort of jumped around the country at that point and really found my kind of my lane, which was large scale festival and events chaos. And um, after that kind of came crashing down with the Brisbane floods, it really was a time to recalibrate and really rethink what do I want to do? Where do I want to kind of be? So I I decided I wanted to be a digital nomad and I could be anywhere in the world. And I guess that's really what got me here as well as my daughter. When you talk about the flood in Brisbane, that was the flood that wiped out the site of the Dreaming Fest Festival? That's correct, yeah. 2011, 2012, we were one of the first areas to get hit before Brisbane. And it really decimated the site of Woodfordia up in um, Woodford, Queensland. It was devastating and there was really a difficult journey to recover, if any, uh, in terms of where we were pre-natural disaster to where we ended up. And, you know, the, the sadness of that really was that one of three leading Indigenous international indigenous festivals of the world now no longer exists because of the impacts of a natural disaster. Yeah. Absolutely tragic. Yeah. 
So when did you make the decision to move across to the United States? So I say I put my paperwork in under Obama and then Trump got in. So everything kind okay. of like started to slow down a little bit in terms of the paperwork. And then, then it accelerated really quickly. So it was December 2017. And two weeks before the departure date was uh, when I received documentation that I was all approved. But I had two weeks in order to activate everything. So they really didn't give a great deal of time. Um, I was pretty fearful of the current political regime at that time, so I opted to do a soft entry to activate my permanent residence, and I went through Hawaii. <laughs> so it was it was be- it was beautiful, and I recommend it. You know, it, it wasn't really draconian. Everyone was really excited, and I was excited because they were excited. So yeah. And so December seventeen, you get your papers approved, and then when do, when do you arrive on the on the lovely shores of Hawaii? Uh, 12th, 12th of December. Oh my goodness. Yeah, they, they really didn't give you a lot of time to activate for whatever reason. Um, and I think it was a bit of a test as well to see if you really were committed to moving. Um, I just put everything in uh, super speed, uh, f- you know, fast forward really quickly and uh, made it over. So yeah, it was mojitos on the beach. <laughs> Not too bad. So how do you manage that transition in, in career and, and life activities when you're moving yourself across the Pacific? How, how did you do that? And you talked about being a digital nomad earlier. How did you transition from an Australian life into that new lifestyle? Well, it was one that I was actually really hesitant on because I thought, you know, I, I, I move across the world. Nobody knows me. Uh, they don't know my career trajectory they don't know any of my achievements it means nothing do I have to start again and I was really you know kind of reluctant to start again in that respect and so I think having the the safety net of some really good relationships back in Australia meant that I was able to be here and work uh, internationally and that was one of the kind of pieces that I really laid down I wanted to be able to travel uh, still and Immediately, the contracts that came through were uh, gigs in Sydney and, and Byron Bay, and then one in Ethiopia. So I was like, okay, this is this is you know starting to kind of take off, and then building the relationships here and finding a really amazing, authentic group of like-minded people and uh, you know creative talent uh, second to none out here from from Australia, and you know really inspiring um, and and then feeling like I didn't have to lose my currency and that we could have these conversations at this elevated level and we could start from there instead of, you know, dishes upward kind of thing. Yeah, so that's that was really the, the resistance or the initial hesitation about do I really want to do this? But then once I kind of locked into it, it was like, you know, I can't turn back now. So as those projects that sort of connect back to Australia start to conclude and you're, and you're looking more to, to what's happening in the US, how did you transition your career into working in the United States? How did that process look for you? Part of it was a really conscious decision. And I think when I was at the Australian Theatre Festival and we'd done a, a moved reading of uh, Milk by Dylan Vandenberg, and I'm sitting there on a panel 
and they're, they're asking, you know, how many Americans does everybody know and how many Australians do you know, you know, in the kind of quota and everyone's like, I don't really know any Aussies. And then I realized I didn't really know any Americans, but it was time. And so I think I just reached in a different way. I, I took on some uh, gigs here that positioned me in a really favorable way to be seen by the industry over here. And the industry uh, at the time was uh, large scale festivals and events. And from that really kind of hit the bootstraps and be a name that people could call on to be, you know, like in the operations rooms and in the direction of the events that we then went on and, and did. How do you find those connections and, and, and work that network in a specific industry? It's a large events industry. How do you get in? Um, doing what I'd call random acts of innocent insanity. Um, <laughs> Good. So one of the events that really kind of was a turning point was uh, an event in Santa Ana. And it was an event that had a, uh, a really kind of tragic story in the middle. It was a police brutality story and it was a council member's family member who was gunned down by the police. And at the intersection of that, he was really adamant that the commemoration for Brandon Lopez, his cousin, would be there. Now, I didn't know that that was the major artery for the whole of the Santa Ana Orange County district. So I said, yeah, sure, we can shut down that intersection. And we did. And I, I made a major event happen in the biggest corridor of that part of Southern California, not knowing how the impact of that would really be received. And I think everyone was like, oh, my goodness, she's a hero how you know no one else could have pulled that off and it was really just because I didn't know any better and I was like okay well yeah let's get the the permit um, waived for this let's do that let's you know this is how it's going to look at the intersection and and then get it all blocked off and was up at 4am with the trucks filling the water barricades to block the road off and stayed there till the whole day basically on a Saturday on one of their busiest days of the year so um yeah, that got me mad props. Yeah, that's an incredible first step into producing events in in Santa Ana. It's a city down in Orange County, for those who don't know, where cars are very sacred. And to stop roads, is, I'm sure, was incredibly controversial. How did you even get that first gig? Yeah, so I want to say that it was... Um you know, stepping backwards, it was through direct connections with some of the Aussies out here and then being welcomed into their circle and, and from that circle, you know, the gig coming through. So really value, as I said, you know, the, the amazing um, Australians out here who are doing phenomenal things and leaning in and everyone being really supportive. And, that you know, that was the thing that I think is not unique to me in that when you're in Australia, a lot of it's you can't do. So it's a very negatively geared situation, especially for Aboriginal women. <laughs> you know, you, you kind of overachieve so by. Um, and then over here where everyone's just like, OK, let's go. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so there was a bit of removing the conditioning of where we were supposed to be and, you know, what our place was, was supposed to look like to being open to a whole range of gigs at phenomenal levels and really advancing the arts and creative spaces and you know personal journey at the same time is there a moment where you felt local where you felt like what we call an angelino is it do you remember any moment where you're like yeah this is my town now no because i still even last night coming back from the gym i was like I'm in America. Like, I literally said that out loud. Like, I'm like, I can't believe I'm still, you know, I'm here. Um, 
and also because I I saw a checklist and I haven't seen a burning palm tree yet. So, <laughs> so I think if I see the burning palm tree, yeah, I'm, I might be a local at that point. <laughs> to recap, you've closed an intersection down in Orange County. You've thrown an opening for the Sixth Street Bridge. And if our listeners don't know, that was a massive LA project. It took years. It's a bridge that connects downtown to East LA. And it's a significant bridge in, in, in many ways, both both culturally and in terms of the movement of vehicles in Los Angeles. You've produced the opening of that with the mayor and other dignitaries, yet you're still not fully convinced that you're an LA local just yet. No, no burning palm trees, I'm afraid. Right, just a burning palm tree away. Absolutely. So if you had to look back to 2017, you know, the, the time right before you moved is there any advice that you'd give yourself? Oh, that's a, that's a really interesting question because I, I was as prepared as you think you can be until you really hit the ground. And then it's honestly, it's all that, that kind of logistical stuff that you don't know if you don't know. And I think, you know, part of the work that I can do now um, with APRA AMCOS, for example, is, is be a bit of a source of information to the members who are over here either touring or thinking about visa options or permanent residence or you know, immigration, all sorts of things to be able to kind of step through some of those pieces that I just didn't know so that, you know, they can get on with the business of creating amazing outcomes and wonderful music and whatever artistic endeavours they wish to do. Well, that is an excellent way to wrap this up because people will have the opportunity to hear what you've had to say today. And as the APRA AMCOS representative, I'm sure you get a lot of phone calls and emails from people who are starting the journey themselves and looking for that guidance. So just hearing a little tiny bit of your story, I hope is, well, I'm sure is inspirational to them. So thank you very much for for talking to us for the the Cockatoo uh, interview. It's an amazing story that you've come from one of the most remote parts of Australia or even the world. And here you are doing incredible work in LA, both as a producer, as a, as a leader in our community and as someone who's helping our songwriters out here. And you definitely are a part of this community and, and, and we're so glad you're here. So it's been lovely talking to you today, Sam. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Adam. So this has been the Cockatoo interview. It's part of our newsletter for the Australian Music Alliance. We are all under the umbrella of the Pitchhiker Foundation, which is a 501c3, so please feel free to donate. But the most important thing is that you enjoy listening to what we have to say and the conversations we have and supporting Australians and Australian music here in the United States. Thanks so much for for tuning in, and we will catch you on the next edition of The Cockatoo.